0: how we want to get a product on the shelf is we don't want to go in there and sell them the exact same thing that is already there in, um, in other brands. Like we want to come and help produce more sales and more volume and be what we call incremental to their shelf. So if there's already something we, um, like a specific type of product on the shelf, we want to come in with something different. That's going to drive excess sales.
1: In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with a question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Hi everyone, welcome to Scaling for Good. I'm Mike Beckham, CEO and co-founder of Simple Modern. And today we are going to be talking about mass retail and sales. In 2017, the company had one of its biggest days. We were able to present to a target buyer our vision for partnering with them to sell Simple Modern in Target. We had done a bunch of research about our target customer and our demographic, and we felt like the perfect place to be offering our products was Target. The problem was we hadn't been able to get them to be interested before that point. When we finally got a meeting and were able to present our vision, the buyer was excited and a deal was struck. And that began a multi-year partnership that today involves selling tens of millions of dollars of product on Target shelves. As you can imagine, that takes a lot of work, a lot of behind the scenes planning, salesmanship and thought. And today, I'm happy to be with one of the architects of our Target partnership and many other partnerships, Kelly Bennett. Kelly, welcome to Scaling for Good. Thank you so much for having me. You are in sales mm-hmm. and that's that's your role with the company you work with Target and some other major retailers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with relationship management. It's a huge part of what you do. So what does it look like to be in sales where you have a small number of customers that are really big customers, very important relationships? How do you develop those relationships?
0: Yeah, it can be really tricky, especially if you only get, you know, a few hours a year where yeah. you're actually face to face. That's
1: one of the most shocking things. To that me. has been
0: one of the more surprising things to me of being in a math retail sales position is how little interface you actually have with the buyer on yeah. a day-to-day basis. Why is
1: that? Why does that happen?
0: Um, I mean, both parties are very busy. Like we're not in Minneapolis, which is where Target is located. We, you know, we're in Oklahoma. They have a lot of other um, vendors that they're working with, a lot of other suppliers that they're working with. Um, usually we meet up once, maybe twice a year in person if we're mm-hmm. lucky. You know, we love those interactions. We think it's really important to get to have space time with the buying team. Um, but it doesn't always work work out that way I mean everyone has these busy schedules they have a lot on their plates we have a lot of ours and so it's not always um you know we're not having weekly sales updates with them so
1: yeah and and that adds I would say some pressure obviously yeah you know when you're trying to build a relationship with someone where there's a lot on the line and you're trying to help them understand who you are but you have a lot of things you have to accomplish a lot of like practical, tactical things that have to be hammered out. There's pressure, there's differences of opinion sometimes mm-hmm. around those things that have yeah. to get done and some tough conversations. And, oh, by the way, you're only going to get a few hours a year to really make that impression. So how do you try to really clearly explain who you are to these partners and build the relational side, the, the interpersonal side of the relationship?
0: Yeah, I think that throughout the year, I mean, it's not that you might not see them more than once or maybe twice a year, but you're you're communicating with them. You're you know, you're in a deep, deep partnership. Like we are very reliant on Target to keep our business growing. They're reliant on us to keep their business going. We're in communication. I think that one of the um, things that I've learned is just being um like timely. Like if we're asked of something, getting it to them in a timely manner. If we have a deadline to meet, we need to meet that timeline. If we are asked to send samples, we meet that timeline. We are always trying to be forward thinking about what the next thing that the buying team might ask of us. Um, And it's one of the things that I feel like I've gotten better at over the past couple of years of having just gone through these processes a few times is being like, I know that once we get to this point in this process, they will ask me for X, Y, and Z things, whether That's a SKU or a UPC or a sample. I I have like the knowledge and insight now to plan ahead and just being a really good partner, not keeping them waiting, Mm -hmm. um, being respectful of their time, anticipating the needs of the buying team.
1: Yeah, and and we've talked about this. You know, Carson and I did an episode where we talked about this. I think anticipating the needs of somebody else really requires you to. Put yourself in their shoes
0: yeah absolutely and
1: understand okay what are the demands on them what are the challenges and yeah. it turns out you know these buyers have a lot of demands It's a very high pressure job.
0: Very high pressure job. Yeah, and our team, our our buying team at Target, I mean, they're phenomenal at what they do.
1: So how do you do that? How do you anticipate uh, the different needs that the buyer or stressors that the buyer's going through and make sure that we're somebody who's helping support them and making their job easier as opposed to being a bottleneck?
0: Yeah, I think that one of um, the prime examples I can think of from this year is um, we had a product that we were putting on what Target calls POG on their shelf that we were really confident in. Mm -hmm. Um, We believed that it was going to have a lot of success in Target. Of course, you don't know that going into it. You can have hopes and expectations, but those aren't always necessarily the truth. But one of the ways that I feel like we anticipated their needs is, you know, we had um, seen some early preliminary sales data on, on our own website and our own Amazon, like, Ecom presence, and we knew that we probably needed to order heavier than we were thinking. Yeah, so Um, they
1: provided a forecast. They provide
0: a forecast. Target will provide a forecast to us, and it's really it's a really great, meaningful, great. Like we're grateful for their forecast. We thought, you know, with what we're seeing, we think we might actually beat that. So we need to collectively as a company. Like one of the greatest things about mass retail. Side note is that um, my department, the mass retail department, works with every single other department in the company. And yeah. I think that's one of the very few. One of the most
1: collaborative One roles. of the most collaborative.
0: So I was able to go to our planning team, show them the forecast, and say, you know, we're seeing more success than, or we think that there could be more success here. We need to buy heavier than what they're saying. So we don't leave Target, one of our key partners, um, out of stock within right. a couple of months. So we have to get the logistics team involved. We have to get the planning team involved. We have to get the manufacturing team involved and anticipate that, We the worst thing we could do as a partner is run out of this product um, and really put them in a place where, you know, if you don't have anything to sell, you're not selling anything. (laughs) And
1: so this is a really good point that one of the things you do is you sell externally, but you also actually do a lot of selling internally. Mm -hmm. In the example that you're giving, you know, retailers don't like running out of a product, even if they give you a forecast and you exceed it, they still aren't going to be happy if they don't have it. But uh, you have to convince people internally. Like mm-hmm. the trade off is that costs real money. Yeah. And if you're wrong, you know, that, yeah, and that's, then you're left with, yeah, surplus. you're holding the bag. Yeah. And so you've got to advocate internally with some of our teams with why we should allocate more resources towards inventory for Target uh, or for this particular SKU because you think it can be really successful. Mm-hmm. So you're actually doing some selling internally, I, absolutely.
0: right? Absolutely. I feel like a lot of um, Carson and I's job is uh, to, you know, we get um, information or we might get a, an award from the buying team or any of them. And an
1: award w- is just them saying, we're giving you this business. Yes. It's not like a plaque, right? Yes, <laughs> that'd be
0: dope though. <laughs> that'd be
1: awesome. If it was memorialized
0: with yeah. a plaque, but right, we're, we're waiting for that. It's probably
1: in the mail, but yes. we, we haven't gotten um, one of those. If we
0: get business from a retailer, yeah. then we have to- um, You know, there's only so much production capacity. There's only so much capacity that a company can have, and we have to go. Carson and I and other people on our team have to go and and really push. You know, like, hey, this is their deadline. It has to be in their stores or in their DCs by X Y Z date. They are such an important partner to us. What can we do internally to kind of rearrange some production schedule to hit their deadline? We want to be a good partnership to them. We value partnership. How do we make this happen? And oftentimes that'll come. In um, in like kind of rearranging a workflow of other things that are going on in the company because we think it's what's best for the overall company.
1: Yeah, and one of the tensions that that arises, I mean, obviously when you're working with any other big organization, they have their own calendar, they have their <laughs> own their own set of yeah. priorities, and often that calendar or those priorities don't necessarily align with mm-hmm. our our calendar, and so there have definitely been situations I think in the past year where. Uh, I know that people internally are saying, hey, we, we need this, we need this, we need this. And you're like, uh, I don't have it yet. Yeah, I
0: mean, just yesterday, the, the planning team was on me. Hey, when are we going to get um, the the forecast for xyz when are we going to get this and i have to say i i feel like i'm always playing this game of wait 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 how much time do we have how much time do we have because there is a real timeline at hand mm-hmm. if we if we're supposed to have a product launch in a store and say march but they haven't given us the finalization on whether or not that product is green or pink um at some point we have to make a decision yeah. or else it won't get here in time
1: you can't you can't make it
0: i can't make it the day before and i think that that has been one of the also more surprising not surprising um, because it makes sense. I just hadn't ever thought about it until I got into this role, how far in advance you're thinking.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's talk through a calendar. Yeah. So um, if like if, in my so,
0: mind, it's already 2025.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because you're actually <laughs> making decisions that are going to impact. Yeah. So you uh, will, we'll talk through the line review process. Let's huh? actually do that. Let's actually deconstruct for everybody listening because you know mass retail is super opaque.
0: Yep. Um, Everyone's different.
1: Everybody's different, and if you don't have some kind of background in it, you have you know that things are on the shelf, and that ostensibly those come from suppliers like us, yeah. or but, like a
0: fairy brings them. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's like uh,
1: you know. Uh, but outside of that, you, there's no insight into the process. I remember when we first were starting the company, and I wanted to sell. Uh, some of our product to to Walmart and Target, I I really had no idea even where to start. Mm -hmm. So we'll walk through that process of how does a brand get their item on the shelf? Because I, I think it's, I did a thread about this on Twitter, and I really practically walked through it. And it was one of, um, you know, my most popular things I've shared simply because there's just not many resources Yeah, and there are there. so
0: many businesses out there that would love a shot at having a meeting Absolutely. with the Targets and Walmarts and Sam's and Costco's of the world. And
1: Let's start here. When is a brand ready to start thinking about selling their product in big time physical retail?
0: I think when they can produce it to scale.
1: Okay, so part of it is you the, have the, production the order capability. quantities. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. you've got to be able to hit pretty big numbers and do it really reliably.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think like an easy answer to that and just like the, like the, of course, the general obvious answer would be when you have a product that has mass appeal. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's kind of the obvious choice of the answer. I think that you could have made the best product in the world, but if you don't have a team of people behind you that can execute on getting it into millions of people's hands, then you don't have a product that deserves to be in a mass retail store. It,
1: it's easy to gloss over this point, but we really shouldn't. Like the machine, like everybody gets the benefits of the machine that we Mm -hmm. live in, like in modern society. But very few people know all of the gears and levers that are kind of hidden, as you said, behind the curtain. And there's a lot. Like it is miraculous in many ways, the way that the modern supply chain works and how these stores keep things on shelves. But not surprisingly... That takes a lot of moving things around in the physical world, a lot of hard work from a lot of different people in order to be able to pull it off. And if you don't have a team of people, team of professionals really that can help support that you're going to get overwhelmed.
0: I know. I think about that a lot. Every time I go into a retailer and I see a product that I've personally had my hand in selling and it's landed on the shelf, I'm like, oh, we did it. It's like a miracle. Like, oh my gosh, that it happened. It is like, a, it's like a divine miracle <laughs> yeah. when you just think
1: about like all the things that happened, yeah. all the steps, all the That people. thing I did
0: last year that was so menial at the time has such an impact on this product being in front of me physically. And, um, and it is... It truly is pretty it's miraculous. It's a proud moment. It is. It is so proud. I mean, I feel like I, I, I will go and like take pictures of myself in front of the shelf. Yes. like send them to my family. I'm like, I've been working on this for a year. And um and there have been 200 iterations of what you're seeing now yeah. between the time that we initially started talking about it with a buyer to what you're actually physically seeing. There have been a million different versions.
1: Uh, you said mass appeal. Mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, I don't know if this is what you're pointing at, but you've got to have really good product market fit. Yes. You don't want to go into mass retail with something that you're like, is already there. That's it, it, already there or where you're like, I, I think it might work. Right. Like that's, it's pretty risky.
0: Yeah. You want to make sure that you have a product that people want. <laughs> I mean that yeah. at the end of the day, we, sell products. We need the products to sell. You need the product to be um, a product in which people want to have their hands on, people want to be associated with, people want to take with them. You know, um, we say, take us with you. I actually mean that when we say um, our company, take us with you, like I want to be seen with our product. We want other people to want to be seen with our product. And
1: a significant, you said mass appeal, a significant percentage of people in that store have to be potential customers Mm -hmm. or it just won't work. So just to deconstruct a little bit about how mass retail works, this was a helpful analogy to me. The mass retail is not really that different than running an apartment complex or real estate. They have a certain amount of square feet and that doesn't really grow. Like if you're running a target, you have a certain number of square feet in that target. If you're a buyer, you have square footage in a bunch of different targets. And every year, your goal is how can I earn a little bit more from that space that I have been allocated than we did the previous year. I'm having to compete with the numbers, how much revenue and profit we did with that amount of space in previous years. Mm -hmm. I need to find a way to do better than that. And they're constantly having to figure out, hey, how do I raise the bar? And when they're looking at the vendors that they work with and potential new partners, they're saying, how are you going to help me do that? How yeah. are you going to help me to to be able to, to have a little bit more rent, a little bit more sell through, a little bit more appeal than I had in the previous iteration yeah. of this? If that's their goal, uh-huh. how do you do that? How do you help pitch them on the idea that you're going to be able to help them make their square footage, their shelf more productive.
0: Yeah, I think one of the ways, at least when we're kind of in those brainstorming processes and brainstorm meetings before we go into what we call a line review, which is when um, you meet with the buying team and you show them what um, the new products that you've made over the past year, what you think would be a good addition to their uh, shelves. We call that a line review. Um, So the line review is a formal pitch where you're
1: saying, we think you should do exactly this. You should buy all these things from us Mm -hmm. and here are all the reasons why. Yes.
0: or you should buy this vessel type or this product type, and let's collaborate together um, on like, is this a color that you like? Is this going to be incremental to your shelf? We talk about incrementality a lot, and I think that when we going back to your original question of what we're um, what how we want to get a product on the shelf is we don't want to go in there and sell them the exact same thing that is already there in, um, in other brands. Like we want to come and help produce more sales and more volume and be what we call incremental to their shelf. So if there's already something we, um, like a specific type of product on the shelf. We want to come in with something different that's going to drive excess sales.
1: Okay, so let's let's talk about incrementality. I'm glad you brought up that word. I think that that is kind of the the holy grail in mass retail if you mm-hmm. think about it with Target. Um, one of the ways they can grow sales is they can get more people to come into the building Mm -hmm. and you would like to think, you know, your product is good enough that it will have more people come to target, but you've got to have, you've got to be on fire as a company to be at that level of appeal where you can say, viral. that's exactly (laughs) right. And maybe, you know, our category Stanley, maybe there have been points in the last year where it really was that, where it's like, hey, we really do have foot traffic that's showing up just because you have this thing. But generally, that's hard to do as a brand. It's hard to argue, like, hey, we're so powerful that people are literally going to get in their cars and drive to your stores just because Mm -hmm. we're on the shelves. So you have to make an argument around how you're bringing incrementality, how you're bringing additional sales that would not have happened otherwise as a result of your presence. And some of the things that you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned is it's not incremental if you say, hey, you're selling a black water bottle for $20, but our $20 black water bottle is even better. Yeah. You should sell ours also. That's not incremental. Yeah. You know, just moving people from buying one, black, even, though, even if you are giving the customer a better experience, that's not particularly helpful to the retailer. So let's talk about some of those dimensions of incrementality. Uh, one of them is ornamentation. How does ornamentation provide incrementality?
0: Goodness, I mean, I think going back to the black water bottle at $20 example, um, if that's already on the shelf, well, we don't wanna bring in a comp- like a competitor product, a competing product to yeah. that product. We wanna bring something that, um, you know, someone walking by might Think well. I already have a black water bottle. Oh, but I don't have a hot pink water bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, or this one's cool. This is a cool on-trend color. This is a cool new assortment. Leopard pattern. Leopard whatever. pattern. Multicolored situation. We want to do something that has the mass appeal, but is also incremental to what they already have on their shelf. And we think about that a lot.
1: So in our category, we've become a lot more of a fashion category.
0: Absolutely. Probably
1: than people would have expected. And so it it, it was a pretty interesting realization as this has become a stronger and stronger trend in our category, just how fashion driven it is. Because as a fashion driven category, incrementality means that you're really, there's a lot of impulse buying. There's a lot of like, oh, that's a pretty color. I could use a water bottle in that color. You know, and that maybe wasn't the way it was three or four years ago. Now, it's become more
0: than just function, our category. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's
1: normative. Like how many, how many, uh, maybe you're not a good example, but like, okay, when you think about your friends, yes. how many water bottles do you think they own? Between
0: five and 10, each of them. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, And they all have
0: different, what we would say is a use case. Or some of my friends even have multiple tracks that they switch out um, every couple of days or based on their mood or their attitude or the weather. <laughs> it's like a mood ring. It okay, is. I it really it. is. And I think that that's what is really cool about the particular category we're in. Um, and what is, you know, helping to drive that incrementality is that when I go shopping and I see a cute, bright colored water bottle, I'm like, great, this is like this is um this is an item that's going to bring it's an accessory
1: yeah it's an accessory yeah. the the big the big breakthrough for me was when i realized some of what you're competing with uh, when when you're trying to create incrementality in our category, you're, you're not competing with them buying another water bottle. You're competing with things like their Starbucks budget and mm-hmm. how much money they're going to spend at Lululemon. And that's how, our, I mean, our category has been very successful at continuing to grow, especially compared to almost anything else yeah. in home or housewares. It's been, housewares. It's been there's really only unique. There's only
0: so many toasters you can have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's like, that leopard toaster, that leopard toaster. would look great.
0: Right. It is a very unique category category, I think we're really aware of that. We like see the gift in the category in the space that we're in. Um, but this is we we happen to be in a category selling products that you can have multiple of that can be another expression of style and um, personality.
1: So another way that you can generate incrementality is that, you know, they were selling the black water bottle at $20, but now they're selling your black water bottle at $23, it can be through price going yeah. up. Now for us as a company, we're really committed to trying to have, you know, exceptional, uh, prices for what you get for our product. Um, mm-hmm. but there have been points where our prices have, have created incrementality. How do we think about that? How do you create incrementality through pricing?
0: When I think about creating incrementality through pricing, I think that you can't just charge more for the same product.
1: Yeah. That's a losing formula. That's a
0: losing formula. You have to provide a different value, mm-hmm. um, in order to have a more expensive Product because there are different types of consumers. There's different types of shoppers. People are on different budgets, so they might come in looking for the ten dollar item or the twenty dollar item, mm-hmm. or they might say like, "Oh, this is a use case. I'm willing to spend thirty dollars on this product, right. or even more." And so I think that you can't just have this attitude. Well, I'm going to go in there, make the same thing, and charge more. Like you have to constantly be forward thinking with your production or your um, product development team. Like, how are we going to add more? Yeah. How, to do this how do we make a better lid? How do we make it people want to
1: pay more for? Yeah. How
0: do we how do we drive more um, sales by having a better item to sell
1: that there's actually more value Price because that's line. that's a thing for us as a company yeah. is that we always want to feel like when people buy our products, their experience, the kind of emotional you know gut reaction they have is man, I got more than I paid for mm-hmm. And so sometimes there's tension there where the retailer, they, they want people to have a good experience, but they need to hit their numbers. They need to hit their yeah. comps. And we want to help them accomplish their goals, but not ever at the expense of the customer having a good experience. That's bad for our brand. Yes, That's bad. That's I mean, really, it's bad for the retailer. It's bad for everybody when the customer starts to feel like, man, I bought this, but I did not get very good value out of that purchase. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the places that we sell, like Target's um, slogan is expect more, pay less, right? You know, where it's, it's all about hey getting more than you felt like you paid for. So to your point, we've got to find ways that how can you make it more normative to buy a water bottle for $23 or $25 and that's going to require finding a way to make it more valuable. Yeah. You know. And and the way we get there I think is we talk to customers a mm-hmm. lot. We look at data on how yeah. customers are spending money and we we talk to them and ask ourselves the question of hey how do we how do we make a bottle that is an unbelievable value at twenty five dollars? Yeah,
0: I mean, this is the only water bottle company I've ever worked for, but I can't imagine. <laughs> right. I can't imagine um, other companies value data and customer feedback quite like Simple Modern values data and customer feedback, and we really try and utilize both of those tools to create the best product for our customer.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluebird Group. Years ago, we wanted to break into mass retail and we thought Target would be the ideal place for our products. Our problem? We knew nothing about selling into mass retail. We emailed the buyer with no response. We could not find a way in. That was when we were introduced to experts at the Bluebird Group. The Bluebird Group is an organization of professionals who've spent their career working inside of and selling into the biggest retailers in the world. They help clients successfully sell into Target, Best Buy, Walmart, Amazon, and Costco. Through our relationship with the Bluebird Group, we were able to get in front of decision makers and deliver a compelling vision about how we could partner together with Target. Over the last six years, Bluebird has helped us to grow our business every step of the way. They've helped us with everything from administrative details to developing new partnerships to fine-tuning our omnichannel strategy. We've been able to grow the business to tens of millions in annual sales as a result their coaching, and their partnership. It's easy for me to advocate for Bluebird and everything they've done for us at SimpleBot. One of the final ways that you can create incrementality that was a huge part of our pitch, uh, this even predates you when we, we initially sold into Target, was if you look at the demographics of who shops at Target, it's very similar to Amazon. Um, in fact, it's it's Female heavy and, you know, 25 to 45. And our argument to Target was your customer is our customer. Yeah. And they are already buying our product. They're just buying it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And if you're not offering it on your shelves, then you are really probably losing customers to Amazon every day Mm -hmm. that would be buying more in your store. They're just buying a little bit less. You can't see it, but they're buying less than they would. And then they're just going home and buying our product from their phone or from their computer. Don't you want to be represented? And so sometimes being able to show retailers how online data is pointing towards trends Mm -hmm. or you know uh, there's this term challenger brands or digitally native brands there's been a lot of success retailers have had in finding incrementality i mean one of the perfect examples is the uh, natural deodorant space Mm -hmm. with things like native there's these companies that started online and grew a following and really normalized deodorant being ten dollars a stick and not $2 $2 a stick, yeah. uh, and then the mass retailers were able to see, okay, we're losing market share yeah. and we should bring this like in. Like there's a demand a there.
0: We might as well have a piece of the demand. Yeah.
1: Everybody needs deodorant. Yeah. And, and it's it's been kind of a tipping point and a huge mm-hmm. win in mass retail. So sometimes as a more digitally native brand, we're able to kind of say, hey, we actually see a trend that you can't even see it in your mm-hmm. data because we're seeing it in online data, which is usually ahead of physical retail data. Would you agree with that? Yes, Yes.
0: And I think that we use a lot of that data, um, a lot of the um, digital data that we get to help us benefit our physical brick and mortar retailers.
1: Yeah. I I feel like that was one of the bigger value propositions uh, that we could offer is that we just had more insight because we were getting data from places that they weren't. Yes. And,
0: and that we were testing a lot of stuff. And how, retailers how have come to know that about us. Mm. Like even just this morning, I got an email from one of our major buyers that we work with and said, hey, what trends are you guys seeing with products that you've rolled out digitally? Yeah. Um, where are you seeing, is like a larger ounce capacity still trending in a specific way? Are you seeing solids or patterns trending for kids. Um, And it's really great because we have the ability to utilize that data and have a more, I think, like educated um, proposals for our buyers. Yeah.
1: And as a omni-channel retailer, we actually have data coming from different places so many. <laughs> that have a really different point mm-hmm. of view, you know, mm-hmm. so we can say, well, here's what we're seeing kind of more in physical retail and here's mm-hmm. what we're seeing over here in digital and here's what's happening on our website. And so uh, kind of overall, maybe we see this trend, but yeah, I think that is, that is a huge deal. Our, our willingness to test has really played in our favor. Another thing that we- And willingness to fail. It, absolutely. Yeah. You know, willingness
0: like, to create um, an ornamentation or even a product that uh, you're like, oh, that didn't have the legs that we thought it would. Um, and
1: that actually matters in store, too, it matters so much. not everything you try with a buyer is going to work. Nope. Right. Mm-hmm. So so when something doesn't go well, you know, we're convinced, hey, this product's going to be great. And we're able to convince a buyer to see it the same way. And they try mm-hmm. it and it doesn't go well. You can often
0: know within a few weeks.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. actually one of the crazy, uh, yeah. almost discouraging things is that oh, yeah. you can
0: spend I can tell 15 you. months mm-hmm. getting
1: it on the shelf and then oh. you know in 15 days that it's yeah, not like, going to work. Oh, well,
0: that didn't do what we hoped it would That's do. right.
1: So... Yeah. How do you manage that whenever you're in a situation with a partnership, with a buyer where something's not working as expected?
0: I think that goes back to having that relational capital like already set in place. Like They trust you. You trust them. You know you're both working for the benefit of each other's good. Yeah. Um, and immediately going to them and saying and acknowledging, um, hey, this isn't doing what we hoped it would do. This isn't what you expect out of us. This isn't what we expect out of us ourselves what can we do? Can we work together on a sale strategy um, or any type of strategy that would um, help push this product um, to be better than it currently is? Or should we think about, um, you know, in a mid-year change over maybe swapping this ornamentation to something else? Right. So Um, maybe we we
1: offer, hey, we're willing to find another use for this inventory yeah. to allow you to not and that's that partnership. keep your whole commitment. yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's probably the trade-off that's worth Because there have been there. other
0: times within the company where we might be really heavy on a product and it would not be beneficial to Simple Modern to say, hey, yeah. this is not um, doing well. We're going to pull it um, or we're going to offer to change this. yeah um, But we have because we know it's For the benefit of the relationship and for the benefit of the relationship and the brand long term to say we're willing to take on this additional inventory because we this product didn't do as well as we expected. We're willing to eat that in order to bring in something better that is that is going to do better for all of us. This
1: is such a key point. And I really want to I want to spend a minute talking about this because what can happen is the opposite of that. And I'll I'll kind of deconstruct both ways. So you get a product that's not performing and you have a lot of inventory. And internally, you know, your planning teams coming to you. Yeah. Finance planning. They're saying
0: sell that thing. (laughs) We
1: we need to move this. We've got a lot of it. Your your partner at the retailer is saying, Hey, this isn't very good. This isn't going well for me. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And really the right answer is probably that's that that product didn't have product market fit for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just price and there's a way to change price. But usually it's more than that. Usually it's like, hey, we just missed, you know, nobody wanted zebra this year and we (laughs) thought zebra was going to be awesome or whatever the case (laughs) is. But so the the answer usually from the retailer perspective is as quickly as possible. You stop selling that thing and you start selling something else. But internally, all the pressure is. To keep selling that thing because you've got a ton of it. Well, yeah, your money you know, stored up. In Target might hate zebra, but we've got you know fifty thousand of these zebra tumblers. What are we going to do with them, Kelly? And I think that's the trade-off that you're referencing that really matters is that often when things don't go well, there's some real financial pain you have to take mm-hmm. in order to do what's best for the retailer. Mm-hmm and also in order to set yourself up the best for future success mm-hmm. and build the trust yeah, that you're and talking trust. about but it's not free you know like it's easy to kind of say well like yeah you should always make the retailer right and you should be a good partner and you know and it's like okay sure but that costs money yeah. and what really happens a lot of the times is companies will make decisions based on, well, what do we need to do internally for our finances? Well, not only do we need to keep selling the zebra tumbler, but you need to carry it forward because you bought this and we've got a bunch of inventory and you need to make us right. And that's how you end up getting into a situation where that zebra tumbler is still sitting on a shelf 18 months later and nobody wants the zebra tumbler. Yeah. If
0: they didn't want it 18 months before that, they definitely don't want it They're definitely not
1: going to want it then. And and it's a negative feedback loop mm-hmm. there's a there's a loss of trust from the buyer mm-hmm. their metrics aren't hitting what they want to hit and maybe the company did get out of the zebra tumblers but you you kind of won the battle lost the war so to speak and i think that we've tried to and you've done a great job of embodying this think long term Yes, And when we talk about relationship building, here's the thing about relationship building. Relationship building doesn't happen over sushi. Like, sure, you can go right. and have a, a, a dinner with the buyer. It
0: happens over that bad product. That's that exactly you
1: right. That's when you build trust. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've really learned is that actually it's really expensive to build relationships yep. yeah. and to build a reputation, but that that reputation matters. Yeah. And, and to go back to something you said earlier, it's easy to be risk averse when you're a buyer. It's easy to just say, I'm going to take the safe decision here um, because I don't know what happens to me if this goes badly, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how this partner is going to react. But if you build trust and a reputation that if things don't go well, that you're going to be there and you're going to help make things right, you actually create kind of a safety net where the buyer is willing to take more risks. And the reason why I think that's so important, and you've done a really good job of this with Target, is that all of the the outperformance happens when you're willing to think outside the mold. Yeah, You know, when you're like, hey, this is crazy. You don't have a single leopard thing on your shelf. What if we did leopard? We did that at Target this year. Or a licensed
0: adult. Disney product exactly yeah that's a
1: great example so tell that story.
0: Yeah I mean I think that we also have the benefit of working with an incredible buyer right now at Target and she is um, very competent and she is also willing to take risks and I think that that is a great quality to have in a buyer but you know we've had a lot of success um, in our licensed children's products Um, both digitally and also in physical in target the past couple of years and and we um last year went to the line review and thought you know let's let's show her an adult disney product um we know that there are a lot of adult disney lovers out there we don't know if this has the mass appeal but it might be worth just showing her see if she has any interest in taking this product and um it is you know, I think we do licensed product exceptionally well. I think we're the best licensed product um, drinkware supplier in the world. But I think um, it also took the buyer seeing that being a white space or incremental to her shelf. And, you know, when we got the business award, when they said, this is which of your products that we are thinking of taking, we were thrilled to see that she had, she was taking a risk on that adult Disney product. We had no data to show that this would do well in a physical retail environment. So there was a part of me, if I'm being very honest, that um, once I saw the award and I saw that she was taking it full chain, meaning she's putting it in all of Every her targets, all of her targets. Yep. Yeah. Not just a few test stores. Right. Um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't terribly nervous because I was like, oh no, this, you know, this it could was go. a
1: classic, you know, boomer bust.
0: Yeah. I was decision. like, this is either going to hit or it's going to sink. Um, and there it's probably not going to be a middle of the road product. It's it's either yeah. going to do very well or it's not going to do well at all and um the, we you know we internally were just like oh gosh like we'll we'll see we'll see how this yeah. goes we might be asking to pull this immediately and um I think that in my career, I know it's only at Simple Modern. I know it's only been a few, a little over two years, but it, that has been one of the biggest surprises of items I've specifically had my hand in selling. Um, this immediate success of that product—I mean, we were beating forecasts like four x. Yeah, um, and it was thrilling and you know what happened the buyer immediately called and said what are we going to do about more adult licensed disney product what else can we do and that really took um that took a lot of risk on our side and it really took a lot of guts on our buying side on the buying side and and really building that trust that we had built with her on how successful our kids disney products had done and saying yeah i'm willing to take a risk on this because i know you guys have delivered in other areas i'm willing to see if you can deliver again and And boy, did we. And especially
1: in the context, in 2022, Target had massive supply chain issues and was really heavy on inventory in a bunch of places. And so it would have been, again, the path of least resistance is I'm going to be safe. I'm not going to get into any kind of risky position where I might get heavy on inventory again. But that wasn't the path that the buyer took. And some of the reason that the buyer didn't take that path is that we had developed trust in that relationship Mm -hmm. where she felt comfortable doing something, uh, you know, more more risky and more boom or bust. And as a result, it opened up this whole kind of vector of incrementality. Like now that you see it and you see the numbers – it's easy to understand why it's incremental. If you want a Minnie Mouse water bottle, that's a pretty specific thing. You're probably not buying a black water bottle. Yeah. You know, you're hitting a different customer. You're you're drawing a new customer into the aisle. But like you said, it could have just as easily gone the other way and mm-hmm. been a zebra situation where it's like, okay, Minnie Mouse didn't work. Yeah. You know, we're going to, We need to get out of this position and get something else in in its place. So one of the things that we do is we work with an external partner to sell into Target. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about this a little bit because for most brands, uh, that's actually going to be how they get Mm -hmm. into and sell into uh, a mass retail situation. We work with Bluebird Group, which Mm -hmm. has been a huge partner. They're they're based out of Minneapolis um, and they've really been there every step of the way as we've grown. Uh, what are the things that we do in-house versus the things that we do out of house and lean on Bluebird to do? How do they help us to sell into physical
0: retail? Yes. I mean, I think one of, I mean, we love our relationship with the Bluebird group. I mean, they are a great liaison between um, us and Target. And um, I think that they are so capable and so competent in what they do. Um, a lot of them have previous target buying experience. Yeah, there's or, a lot
1: of former buyers who there's, there's transition former buyers. Yep. over to like the the broker side after a while. Exactly,
0: so they know a lot of the ins and outs of the way target business works, how a buyer thinks, what a buyer is looking for, what kind of metrics they're hoping to hit, um, what the line review process looks like, how early you need um, samples, how just the entire process Bluebird is there holding our hands every step of the way. We're doing the work. We're, you know, we're um there just there to help us um relay what we're pitching and what we're the data that we're presenting and the items that we're showing, helping us kind of um, be the liaison between showing it to um, the buyer and our team.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed, and and this happens in any organization is that you have, you know, kind of common language, a way that you talk about Mm -hmm. things. And that is certainly true in every organization. It's true in Target, it's true in Walmart, it's true with Amazon. And sometimes it's been as simple as them helping us understand how to communicate a message, yeah, speak their language, in in their language, and in a way that resonates. Yeah. Other times, it's helping us to understand what the buyer's goals and constraints might be. Something that we think might not, you know, be that big of an ask of a buyer, it would take an act of Congress. Whereas other times, something that seems like a big deal, they will say, well, no, actually, the buyer can do that. They have the authority to help you in these ways that you should ask for that. And so decoding the culture, the unique Mm -hmm. culture of a retailer. Bluebird has been our partner uh, with Target. There are a lot of good uh, brokers out there. Harvest Group is another that we have worked with over the course of the company's lifecycle. Um, and when you get the right broker, it's not—it's uh, a percentage of sales. So it, it definitely is something where you you get what you pay for. But has been pretty integral to us in the process. Yeah,
0: and I think in just even in a practical way, every retailer that we work with has their own back end system, mm-hmm. and they are experts in. Um, their particular retailer that they represent. So for Bluebird, our relationship with them—they help us with Target. Um, they are experts in Target's backend system. They know everything about how we need to get an item set up. They're a great source if we have a question. Um, they have done a lot of training with me. I pull a lot of data reports. They've sat and like taken the time to teach me how to pull units per store per week or any of the metrics that we're trying to measure internally. Um, and they um, another benefit is you know they're in Minneapolis, which um, is really beneficial because if they need to drop something off or they yeah. have they have more um, of the everyday presence with the buying team should the buying team need um, a simple modern like representative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we've gone pretty deep on uh, mass retail sales. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience at the company. When you think about uh, being here for two and a half years, what are one or two of your favorite memories?
0: Okay, I've been thinking about this. Um, My all time favorite memory I hope can I say my all-time favorite? Memory? You can say it. Okay. Um it's not like profound. That's all it's right. It's just like a funny memory. Yeah. Um, okay.
1: It's S- funny actually, Kelly. I I think I've been here for eight years, and there have been a lot of moments that, you know, like, oh, we hit a hundred million dollars in sales, or we had this new sales record, or we landed this deal. And what's interesting to me is a lot of the most cherished memories are are not associated with something that would be considered a big out you know it wouldn't be a big milestone it was something relational something mundane Mm -hmm. but it was special for me so what's what's your example i
0: mean i think um when i think about it there carson who i work with um we were on a initial sales zoom call in like the height of COVID um it was we were downstairs in a meeting room it was just the two of us it was this very professional we had prepped we had (sighs) we had done everything we had done everything you need to do before you meet with a buyer for the first time i'm wearing my out my nice outfit carson's wearing his nice outfit we have the everything lined up behind us i've prepped the room everything like that this is a major mass retailer um and all of a sudden Carson and I are talking and the fire alarms start going off oh my and they're testing the fire alarm so it's um, there was not a real fire. We knew this that they were going to do it at some point during the day. It just happened to ha- go off. Worst
1: timing ever. The
0: worst timing ever. Carson, the way he just like tells the story, he always says Kelly almost flew through the ceiling. I am a very jumpy person by nature. I just screamed <laughs> and like got up out of my chair. I thought it was a real fire. Like it is. It is. It was absolutely crazy. Tell me you
1: threw a chair through the window. No, w- but he, I something. like threw
0: my chair back behind me like a rolling chair, and I was like about ready to. I didn't even care about the people on the screen. I was like, "There's a You're, fire." i'm getting out of here save yourselves (laughs) i'm getting out of here and then i mean it's it's like and then it stops for a few seconds then it stops for a few seconds we're like we're so sorry there was a you know a test blah 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 blah." it's we're we're going for like 30 more seconds and then it does it again (laughs) And I am like holding my ears. We put the, the speaker on mute oh and I am like laughing hysterically. And then so Carson's like, what? And I'm like, what do we do? And Carson starts like sl- uh, messaging them in the Zoom link. Wow. Like, hey, this is um, this is not a real fire. But the space bar on the space bar on the computer wasn't working. <laughs> and so he just kept typing no real fire like all one word in like
1: broken english yeah
0: no real fire space bar is not working all in one giant thing and i could not control my laughter i was like off to the side crying um it this is, is the worst sales meeting it is ever so funny and i was like this is we're not getting this business like these people are like who are these unprofessional folks um but carson and i ha- now have this real like funny joke that anytime we're slacking we'll just type no real fire" in. Um, in all in one word that's a great, that's a great one joke. um and then of course just like wow. this past year after the initial data started coming in the initial sales results um just like really beating expectations and forecast by mm. a lot i have to say it was one of the more thrilling few days um uh, at work and uh, like a career high um, yeah. just because you know that you're make like the company is happy and you also know that those relationships that you really invest a lot in and that we really value and cherish like we want to make them happy too that's a huge part of why we do what we do
1: yeah you know there there is really a scoreboard right yeah. like we talk about excellence and we talk about it being your best um, but there is a real competitive aspect of this. There are real numbers involved and there are goals that the retailers have. And you put really more than a year of your life into, mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, one of the major things you invested in was this reset that we did with target mm-hmm. and you wait and you wait and you pour all of this time mm-hmm. in. And then there is Yours a very real moment yeah. of like, how's this going to go? And this year has been incredibly exciting when you see the payoff of all that work. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that's been cool is it's it's not just been hey you know people aren't buying other brands they're buying us. Her entire category's grown like that. Yeah, we have
0: great competitors. Incrementality has happened.
1: Mm -hmm. You know that the actual space has grown, which uh, I think is fantastic. It's one of the things that I'll do that I'll realize that helps me to be less competitive with our other brands that we we compete with. Is to realize that you know I'm really kind of rooting for their success as much as ours yeah. because the category doing well is the best possible thing. Absolutely, that can happen to the us. category
0: exploding and the category going back to what we were saying, like becoming that accessory, becoming that um, that fashion item that people want. That growing um, for every brand has been beneficial to our brand.
1: Yeah. So I asked you about favorite stories, and I told you yesterday I might do this. Uh, I'm going to share one of one of my favorite Kelly stories. I have a lot of uh, favorite Kelly stories, but the reason why I'm going to share this story is that I think this is a, a great, it's a great culture story. And over the years, there have been a few moments that have happened in the company where I thought, man, that really embodies different culture, special culture. Uh, And in some ways, what you hope as a leader to do is create a culture where you're not controlling it anymore. It's happening organically. It's bubbling up. And then you're just you're kind of seeing the effect of it. And and there's a lot of excitement and pride when you see that happening. Um, And so we had a company all hands meeting about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And usually at these meetings, it was a lunch. uh, I give a talk. And my talk was really about uh, humility and us staying focused even as the company's being successful. But uh, one of the things I wanted to do is really shout out to all the departments in the company because I feel like everybody's been executing well. That's why we're winning. And so I I made a list of all the companies and, and how they were doing great.
0: All the departments,
1: all the departments, sorry, yeah. all the departments in the company. And I, I stand up and I start, I start giving this and I'm reading it off my phone. Um, I'm reading through these, these kind of shout outs. Um, and I get to the very end and I do the last department and there's a there's a transition in my talk where I, I go into the rest of what I wanted to say, and right as I'm about to hit that transition, I got a text from Kelly, and you know if I hadn't been reading off my phone, I wouldn't have seen it. But I, I look at the text, and all it said was you forgot you forgot logistics, and immediately I realized like man. As I wrote out all the departments, I had forgotten logistics, which was especially galling because they're a support team in our company that basically nothing works without <laughs> logistics, right? You can't sell they're anything if you can't move Very crucial department. It. Incredibly crucial. And unfortunately, sometimes the most crucial departments that, mm-hmm. that you need but aren't flashy and aren't sales related don't get mentioned. And I was about to do exactly that. Yeah. And I see Kelly's text, I'm immediately able to pivot, and I I start talking about the logistics team. And, uh, you know, I asked people that were there, and I think if you were there, it probably looked like I just remembered, uh, you know, after a couple seconds before I transitioned that, oh, I forgot logistics and now I'm going to mention them. Uh, But the reality was, I would not have remembered. The only reason that I remembered was Kelly. And I love that story for two reasons. The first is, what it shows is teams help each other, support each other, even in weakness. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a lot of gifts with public speaking and I can keep a lot in my head, but I'm not perfect. And in a moment of my weakness, the fact that another team member was willing, and, you know, like on the org chart, you're a couple layers below me, you know, and, in a lot of cultures, you just wouldn't feel comfortable saying to the CEO, hey, you kind of botched this. You kind of missed something important, but that we have the kind of culture where you were able to, to you felt comfortable saying to me, hey, you forgot logistics. But another piece of it that I love is for you to even notice that I forgot logistics means that as I was talking, you were listening. And you were paying attention to all the people that I had mentioned and that you noticed. I I mean, I probably, how many departments did I hit?
0: 12.
1: 12? 14? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Whatever the number yeah. is. I talked to a lot of different groups. Like, you actually were tracking, hey, did everybody in the room get recognized? And the fact that you actually even noticed that they didn't showed a self-awareness. You know, the way that most people would listen to something like that talk is basically I'm just waiting for the good thing about me to be said. You know, like it's all just noise until my department gets recognized and that's kind of what I'm waiting for. But you were actually paying attention to the recognition for everybody. You were actually able to hear Mm -hmm. a group that was admitted. That's what great teams look like and that's how they function it's not that the leaders always get it right. It's that as a group, they support each other and even in weakness, they help each other to succeed. And it's that they're not just focused on self. They really are in it for their teammates. And I thought in that one moment, you captured both of those things. And I found myself just feeling so uh, privileged that I get to work in an environment where that kind of thought process has been able to take root and grow. Because that is really rare. So, Kelly, thanks for joining me. I think you did a great job of demystifying something um, that uh, not many people know anything about and that you do very well. And I appreciate having you uh, on the podcast today. Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode of Scaling for Good. Thanks for being with us.